We are going to have some fun over the next couple of days. And uh, here's what we're going to do this evening to start off. You'll notice a, a little kind of a piece of paper on your uh, your table. There's also a pen. That's a, a good pen. Keep it forever. It's, it's I've got millions of them. And uh, what I want you to do is I want you, and, and tables can do this together, okay? You've got a series of true or false questions, okay? I want you guys to take a few minutes at your table to kind of do this, and then we'll go over the answers later on, and I promise this has something to do with our theme over the next couple of days, okay? Now, you'll also notice a cross, and uh, this is a, it's a, an olive wood cross. It is straight, seriously, from the Holy Land. Um, in Israel, the olive tree is the most popular kind of tree you find over there, and this was made uh, in Israel. And so um, I've got those here. I also have several more, maybe 50 more, if you guys want to get one to take to, you know, a loved one or a friend or a neighbor or whatever, you're more than welcome to do that. Also over there, um, there's a little place card that explains a little bit about the olive wood tree and where it's from. It also has uh, the Lord's Prayer on the back of it. So there are tons of them over there if you guys want to get one later on. So, with that said, and I promise this does have something to do with what we're going to talk about over the next couple of days, spend a few moments with your table going over the true-false kind of things, okay? And I promise there is a, it's going to tie in. We're going to be okay. So, jump to that real fast. Do not blame the messenger, okay? I can promise that I've detailed and researched all of this, okay? So if you have a problem, come see me privately and, and, and all will be well. Somebody kind of keep track of how your tables are doing because if your table does really well, you get to leave 45 minutes before anybody else tonight. So by the end of the night, one table will be left with me preaching. And so that's going to be it. Question number one, eating turkey will make you sleepy. How many of you say true? How many say false? The answer is false. It does. Now, listen up. Okay. Turkey, turkey does contain tryptophan, but so does chicken, so does cheese, so do beans, uh, beef, pork. They also contain tryptophan, but because of the proteins in turkey and all the other foods, it negates any of the properties of tryptophan. The reason we get sleepy after Thanksgiving is not because of the turkey. It's because it's a big meal. And so that's the deal. So the answer for number one, false. No, I didn't. I promise you. This is question two. If you drop a penny off of the Empire State Building, it could kill somebody. How many say true? How many say false? The answer is false. According, according to the United States Mint, a penny is so light that it's not going to build up the speed. It's going to flutter in the in the wind. It's going to encounter drag resistance. In fact, truthfully, it probably won't even break the skin of somebody down below. Question three. Flu shots give you a mild case of the flu. True or false? True. False. The answer is false. According to the Center for Disease Control in Atlanta, it's a common myth, the flu vaccine the flu vaccine is, in fact, made with an inactive strain of the flu. It's not capable of making anyone sick. People sometimes do get sick after the flu shot. And that's because it has some side effects that feel like the flu, but it's not. Also, when you get a flu shot, it takes two weeks before it kind of takes effect. So you could get a cold or a flu, excuse me, like today, get a flu shot tomorrow. You'll still end up getting the flu. It takes a while for the uh, 
the flu shot to, uh, to develop, I guess. Number four, eating late at night will cause extra weight gain. True? False? The answer is false. That actually is a good point. Physiologically, calories don't count any more at night than they do during the day. Very often, very often people who eat at night, they eat the wrong kind of foods, and that's why it feels like it, you gain weight. But uh, basically, just stay within your calorie intake, and you'll be okay. Question five. Humans use only 10% of our brains. True? False? The answer is false. The human body... Now, your wife may tell you differently. Maybe you do only use 10% of your brain. Most folks don't, okay? Uh, the, the, the brain is always constantly working. Even when it seems like your body's asleep, the brain is still doing stuff. In fact, it doesn't literally turn off until death. Most every part of the brain is doing some sort of activity, even when we're not paying attention. Almost all of the brain is used by almost all people. So what's the I don't know. About 90. <laughs> but it's not 10. I know that. Question number six. You can catch a cold if you go into freezing temperatures with wet hair or without a coat. That's what my mom used to tell me. Is that true? Yeah. Is it false? It is false. Why is that? A cold is caused by not wet hair. It's a virus. It's a virus which is spread. One of the reasons we get colds in the wintertime because people are in confined spaces. They're not out roaming around. After the uh, terrorist attacks of 9-11, the, 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 the case of colds in our country went down dramatically. Why? People are together. People weren't flying. Okay, when you fly all these people in this little aluminum tube floating through the space and, and all this stuff, people cough and people catch uh, a cold. Because of that, when people weren't flying after 9-11, the, the cold wasn't spread across the country. So despite what your mother said, the only way to catch a cold is actually to get infected with a virus. Being out in the cold won't do it for you. Number seven, mother birds will abandon their babies if you touch them. True? False? The answer is false. Most birds have such a poor sense of smell that they won't even notice if you touch their little baby birds. Mother birds are so loyal to their, their, their babies, their kids, whatever, that... If you get some bright, you got that wrong. Well, we'll see. Number eight, there is no gravity in outer space. Is that true? Is it false? The answer is false. Gravity certainly exists in space. Astronauts in space, they're, they're not experiencing no gravity. They are experiencing almost all of the Earth's gravity, but there's nothing to stop their progress, so therefore they're in what they call free fall. Okay, a spaceship, for example, is in perpetual free fall all above the Earth. Its forward motion, however, just about equals the speed of its free fall toward the Earth. This means that the astronauts inside are not pulled in any particular direction, so it seems like they float. But there is tons of gravity. Okay, not as much as on the Earth, but there's still gravity in space. Number nine. Some churches have banned throwing rice at weddings because rice, when it's mixed with water, can expand, often causing death to birds who eat it. Is that true? Is it false? Let me say, um, in the, the Connecticut State Senate in the late 1980s, they actually proposed and passed a bill about this, stating that churches could no longer serve rice. However, the answer to this question is false. 
the theory that birds will eat rice and the rice expands and kills the birds, that's ludicrous, okay? Birds eat wild rice all the time. Like I said, the people in Connecticut, God bless them, okay? They passed a bill, even though there's absolutely no truth to this at all. Churches don't have the, uh, the, the, the bride and groom or whatever throwing rice. Why? Because grandma trips on it, and it's, it's hard to clean up. That's the only reason birds have absolutely nothing to do with it. Number 10, swimming on a full stomach can cause one to drown. My mom used to say that. Is that true? Is it false? The answer is false. Yeah, you can get cramps, but it's not enough to keep you from swimming unless you don't know how to swim. In that case, the food's not going to do you any harm either way. Number 11, I love this one. Sugar makes kids hyperactive. True. Anybody say false? The answer is false. According to the CDC, there is absolutely no link, and a lot of studies have been done, no link between sugar and hyperactivity. But, well, my children are hyper all the time, and they eat a lot of birthday cake. Well, that's because they're at a birthday party, and there's a lot of rambunctious activity, so kids get hyper because of that. It has nothing to do with sugar. Now, with that said, sugar is not good for you, limit the intake, but sugar doesn't cause hyperactivity. Number 12. A toilet flushed in the southern hemisphere will drain in the opposite direction than a toilet in the northern hemisphere. True? False? The answer is false. There's a scientific, there's a scientific principle known as the Coriolis effect, okay, and that, that, that's different in the southern hemisphere than in the northern hemisphere, and it does affect hurricanes and large air masses but nothing as small or seemingly as insignificant as a toilet or a sink. They're going to drain a certain way because the jet's you know, being spread out through a certain angle and because of the way the drain might be built. So um, it's, it's false. Number 12, I love this one. Or 13, excuse me. Eating carrots helps your eyesight. True? False? The answer is false. I was, a, I was a history minor in college, and I love this one. This, this myth actually has its origin or its roots in World War II. It actually was a propaganda campaign started by the British. You see, the British Royal Air Force developed a new type of radar technology that allowed them to shoot down German airplanes at night. People were asking, wow, how do you have this technology to shoot down the, the German planes? Well, the British didn't want to give away their secret, so they jokingly said, well, it's because our soldiers and our fighter pilots eat a lot of carrots. The carrot board in England got a hold of this, started to spread this rumor. Absolutely no truth whatsoever. <laughs> Two more. Number 14. During the Salem witch trials, the accused witches were burned at the stake. True? False? The answer is false. Fifteen died in prison, nineteen were hanged. Nobody was burned at the stake. It was still tragic, don't get me wrong. Number 15, the Declaration of Independence was signed on July 4th, 1776. Is that true? You guys are sharp. Yeah, the answer is false. It was signed on July 2nd, or actually it was, it was signed on July 4th, 1776, okay? The Second Continental Congress declared independence on July 2nd. The signing was completed by August 2nd of 1776. John Adams, he wrote this to his wife. I am apt to believe that July 2nd 
1776 will be celebrated by succeeding generations as the great anniversary festival of the birth of our nation. So it wasn't July 4th. So all of these are false. What's up with that? Like I said, you want to argue, come, come, come to my room after dark and we'll, we'll talk about it. Um, I started with these, though. How many of you did really well on this? What table did the best? Do you want to guess? Okay, how many of you got at least 10 correct? These guys, okay, got, got it going on over here. All of them, yeah, he got some of them. Um, either one right now. You can, you can do whatever you want on that. I got 14 right. Wow. That might be a record. That's awesome. <laughs> now, I started with this because I thought it'd be kind of a fun activity to, to get laughter. I think laughter is just a, a great sound, and, and I just think it shows that we're comfortable with one another. It's a lot of fun, develops memories, and all sorts of fun stuff like that. My wife, God bless her, before I came up here today, she said, Joe, no sports stories. Joe, number two, you talk too fast, slow down. So keep me, keep me uh, on, on accountability with that, okay? I'm going to slow down and try to talk a little bit more slowly. Okay, I, I use this because it has a lot of myths, okay? These are popular misconceptions. These are myths that maybe your mom told you when you were growing up. And I share that because right now I want to look at a myth that very often so many Christians have. And that is the fact that, okay, I, I've been saved. I, I've come into a relationship with Christ and, and I'm going to heaven when I die. Absolutely true, biblically, no problem with that. But very often we assume that, that God's through with us, okay? We've been saved, we're going to heaven, that's awesome. Maybe we've got to watch our behavior a little bit, but the truth is God is doing a work in each and every one of us. Whether we know it or not, God is still faithful and, and is doing something tremendously beneficial and glorious in the lives of each of us, okay? Again, that's kind of a myth for me because when I was growing up, okay, just be nice enough or good enough and, and you'll get to go to heaven, but... But you know, read the scripture, it says, no, it's not about our activity. It's not about our behavior, about our work. It's about God's grace and God's forgiveness, God's redemption. So with that said, we're going to dive into the book of Philippians. I love Bible study. I love understanding the, the story behind the story, if you will. Okay, so if you get bored with that, just fall asleep. I'll be okay. I won't bother you, anything like that. The truth is, each and every one of us is continually under construction from and by God. That's one of the reasons that I love to see Christians under construction. You guys get it, okay? Not everybody does, sadly, but God is still doing works in each of us. We are continually under construction. That's what the Bible tells us repeatedly, over and over and over. So, our opening scripture tonight comes from the book of Philippians. Let me give you a little bit of backstory there. You can see some of the major churches that were started on some of Paul's missionary journeys. You see the map of Philippi. Paul wrote this. He was in prison. He wrote this letter to the Christians in the city of Philippi. Paul had actually started the church there. It was the first Christian church. Okay, Philippi was the first Christian church established on the European, European continent. Philippi is actually in modern-day Greece. 
Philippi was a proud and wealthy city. It was named after Philip, who was the father of Alexander the Great. The city is known, kind of like Dahlonega, for its gold. In fact, Dahlonega in Cherokee native language is means gold. And so that's interesting. Philippi was known for their gold mines. Paul had a, really a special relationship with the people in Philippi. Well, Paul was in prison in Rome. Paul received a gift from the Christians in Philippi, the Philippians. And so he's writing this letter really not to delve deep into his theology or his doctrine. He did that in other letters. But in Philippi, he's really talking about giving thanks for the people who had blessed him. This is Paul's most personal letter you'll find in the New Testament. Like I said, doesn't delve deep into a lot of theology, but he talks about joy, which is a major theme, obviously, in Scripture. So here's what we're going to do. Philippians 1, verses 3 through 6. Chat, or verse 3 is my favorite passage of Scripture. There are a lot of others that are really, really close second, but I love this. I thank my God every time I remember you. Wow, how cool is that? In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul is declaring that God is doing some great work in the lives of the people in Philippi. God started a work in them. Does God then abandon it? Does he stop mid-sentence? No, the scripture says that he completes what he starts. Okay, let me take you back to the year 2006. 2006. There's a young man named Kevin Stephen. Kevin Stephen lives in upstate New York. He was 10 years old. He loved sports, as did his older brother. His older brother played baseball. Now, Kevin Stephen, this 10-year-old, he was the bat boy for his older brother's baseball team. And during one game, he stepped out to pick a bat that had fallen on the ground. And he was bending over to, to pick up the bat. Now, meanwhile, the player who was in the batter's box, the, 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 the batter, he, he was waiting for the pitch. And, and, and he took a, a practice swing. Kevin was right behind him and hit the kid right in the head, literally knocked him out. So Kevin collapsed. His heart stopped beating. He went into cardiac arrest, this 10-year-old boy. There was a lot of commotion as people gathered around, and they tried to figure out what to do. He was bleeding from his mouth. He was laying on the ground. He was unresponsive. People called 911, but it would be several minutes before the paramedics would arrive. One of the players on that team had a mom who happened to be in the stands that day. Her name is Penny Brown. She was a nurse. She rushed to the scene of little 10-year-old Kevin. She started doing CPR, and Penny saved Kevin's life. The medics would arrive later. They said Kevin would have died had she not intervened. And I'm glad she was there. As it turns out, she wasn't supposed to be there. She was scheduled to work that morning, but because of an overstaffing situation at her nearby hospital, they asked if she would be willing to take the day off and she did, and she saved Kevin's life. What a powerful story. She was there when she really shouldn't have been. But there's more to this story. Let's jump ahead seven years. Kevin is now 17 years old. He just achieved the rank of Eagle Scout. He serves as a volunteer firefighter in Lancaster, New York. 
He also works in a small restaurant where he's a waiter, the Hillview Restaurant in upstate New York. Now, one day, Kevin, the 17-year-old, he was in the back of the restaurant in the kitchen. He heard some commotion coming from the dining room. Now people started to yell for somebody to help. Somebody was choking. And so Kevin was, was summoned out. He was, a, like I said, a volunteer firefighter. So he kind of knew a little bit about the Heimlich maneuver. You see, a woman was choking. No one knew what to do. They knew that Kevin might know what to do, so they called him out. Kevin came out. The woman was starting to change color. She was choking. No air was getting through to her. A very scary situation. Food was lodged in her throat. She couldn't breathe. Comes out. He brings a sense of calm and order and confidence and boldness to the room. He tells the woman, you know, everything is going to be okay. I'm here to help you. He wanted her to remain calm, and she did. Kevin performed the Heimlich maneuver on the woman, and after some pretty intense action, he was able to dislodge the food. Kevin saved her life. Guess what? What do you think her name was? Penny Brown. That's exactly right. True story. The woman that he saved was none other than Penny Brown, the woman who seven years earlier, the nurse, saved Kevin's life. They were reunited after all of those years. They got together the following week for a lot of the, the morning talk news programs. And uh, pretty amazing story. It, it really defies the odds. I've never heard anything quite like that before. It's simply amazing. But, but you know what the scripture says? The, the scripture says that, that you, as an individual, whether you feel like it or not, the scripture says you are amazing. You have an amazing story. God is doing something in your life. God is continually doing something in my life, even when I don't sense it, even when I get impatient and don't want to wait for it. God wants to do amazing, mighty, life-changing things in your life, with your life, and through your life. And you're never too old to be past that stage. That's the good news of Christians under construction, that God is doing some mighty things. This applies to your life and my life. So we go back to Philippians 1, 3 through 6. I thank my God every time I remember you. I love this. I love the fact that, that he thinks of the Philippians and he praises God because of their presence in his life. Okay, here's a question I'm going to ask for you. If you want to shout in and shout out an answer, if you have one, that would be great. If you don't, that's okay. Here's the question. Oh, that's not the question. Never mind. Here's, here's, here's what the question is. Okay, think of someone who has impacted your spiritual life. Someone who has impacted your spiritual life. Do we want to share that? Maybe who it was and, and what they did, why they impacted you so much? Anybody? Yes, sir. My grandmother. Your grandmother. That's awesome. Please do. Okay. Um, I guess my grandmother was probably 80 years old at the time, or maybe only seven. She didn't live long back then. But she, uh, my husband, my grandfather, and dad, a few years ago, he was living by herself in the book, going to find you over there, I keep off the book. And um, we'll wake you up a little bit. Sorry about that. It's okay. She was on the nursery one night. And when they got her, 
stuff. She's laying out her amazing. Thank you for sharing that. What a blessing that is. What a blessing at a grandmother like that who can influence your life. Wow. Awesome. Anybody else have anything you want to share? Truly one of the saints. Absolutely. Anybody else? My grandmother was, uh, she taught the same Sunday school class, a middle school Sunday school class for 46 years. Um, she was a, a devout Methodist. My other Grandmother on the other side of my family was a devout Methodist. Her, her great-grandparents started a church in, in Charlotte, North Carolina, which is where I was born. And she always prayed that somebody in her family would be a pastor one day. And uh, just before she died, I, I made the, the switch as I followed God's call from, from television sports casting to the ministry. And she was so ecstatic over that and so was able to, to go. And I preached at her service, at her church, not a church service. Uh, that Sunday, and, and the very following week, she, she died. Um, and, and she had asked me in advance if I would do her funeral, so I did that. And, and it was just a really emotional time, um, a real powerful time, because she was a woman who just affected so many people in so many powerful ways. Anybody else? Yes, sir. Everybody, most everybody in He was our teacher for I don't know how many years before he moved away. He was one of the most educated and understanding persons. I think he's the one that kind of moved us all along in our know, Christian life. Mm. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Those of us that have been and see you see as long as George is in court, we do that. Oh, wow. That's awesome. That's really cool to hear about people who have influenced people that have influenced me. I mean, how neat is that? In verse 5 up here, Paul talks about the partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. What do you think he means by that? A partnership with the Philippians. When I was in seminary, um, I had to take Greek and I had to take Hebrew. Now, I graduated from the University of Georgia, where we're not the brightest people in the world. Um, I do think that I speak rather goodly uh, for someone who went there, but 
I, um, I had to learn Greek and I had to learn Hebrew. And now I love Greek and I love Hebrew. And if any of you have ever been in Chapel Roswell when I've preached, I'm sorry. But in addition to that, I have used a lot of Greek and a lot of Hebrew because I think it's kind of important. So we uh, talk about the partnership of the gospel. What, what do you think he means? Now, now, Paul is talking about his imprisonment. It limited certainly his ministry. He couldn't be there with the people whose church he started because he was in prison. But, but Paul does what for the people there? He's in prison, can't be in Philippi. What does he do? He prays, he remembers them, he writes to them. Absolutely. And what do we know about his prayers based on this passage? His prayers were full of what? Joy. And joy and affirmation and encouragement. How would you define joy? That word joy. It doesn't mean just happiness. Happiness is kind of based on your circumstances or the context. Joy is a little bit different. What do you think joy means? Joy, it's a recurring theme that we find in the book of Philippians. In fact, the word joy appears 16 times in the book of Philippians. Nowhere else in Scripture does it find, do you find it more often than there. What do you think we talk about? What does joy mean to you? Inner peace, absolutely. Yeah, that, that summarizes it. Let's just, let's just go home now. It doesn't get any, any better than that answer. It, it's a recurring uh, piece. I, I have it written down, a, a state of mind and an orientation of the heart. It is a settled state of contentment, confidence, and hope. Contentment, confidence, and hope. Hebrews 12.2 speaks of the crucifixion of Jesus in this way. For the joy set before Jesus, he endured the cross. Wow, Jesus was going to the cross, according to Hebrews 12, too. There was a joy that was leading him to that. We know that it wasn't certainly a, a pleasant thing. We, we know that he cried out to God in agony prior and during the crucifixion. And yet, they're saying there's a joy that, that led him to, to do what he did. The reason Paul was always joyful as he prayed for the Philippians, was because of their partnership in his ministry. Now, in Chapel Roswell, I just finished a, a four-part series that talked about the early church, the early church that we read about in the book of Acts. It, it talks about some of the amazing things that they did because of the amazing things that God was doing in them. And a word that we find um, is this. Koinonia, it's a Greek word. You ever heard this word before? Most of you probably have before. When we read Philippians in Greek, the word koinonia is the word for what? Partnership. It does mean fellowship, but, but it, it's the word that Paul uses for partnership. Okay, we were koinonia together. The Greek word for partnership here is koinonia. You've heard that word before. What does it mean to y'all? Sunday school class, absolutely. Uh, the word koinonia is often used in the word fellowship. We know that in Acts um, Acts 2, verse 42, 46, and 47, it says that they were devoted, the early Christians, the early church, they weren't called Christians yet. They, they, didn't, they weren't called Christians until the 20th, maybe 16th chapter of Acts. Early on, they weren't yet called Christians. What were they called? Anybody want to guess what the early Christians were known as? They were called the way. That's one. They were also called the saints. 
We think saints have to do with when we die, the, the saints in heaven, or, or maybe if you're Catholic, the, the patron saint of something. No, they were called saints. A saint is simply someone who has been sanctified, meaning God has redeemed and rescued. And so the word saint, in fact, if you want, if you're, if you're married and your spouse is here, you can say, hey, turn to your wife and the pastor said, I am a saint. Okay, you truly are a saint according to scripture, whether your wife acknowledges it or not. Um, but a saint, a saint simply means a person who has been saved. In fact, true story, this is the only sports story I'll tell, okay? This is just off the cuff. It's not on my notes at all, certainly not up on the screen. Uh, the New Orleans Saints, okay, when the NFL awarded a franchise, a football franchise, to the city of New Orleans, okay, it happened on October 31st, 1966. October 31st is what day? All Saints Day. The people there with their Roman Catholic background said, oh, All Saints Day, let's name our team the Saints. True story, that's where it came from. Okay, with all that said, we're going back to koinonia. It means fellowship. It means partnership. People obviously coming together. It's a word that's used several times in the New Testament. People working together to do something incredible. Now, like we said, the word fellowship is defined as koinonia, but really koinonia is much, much, much deeper than this. We, we look at fellowship to mean, you know, coming together in the name of God. Maybe it's the church. Churches almost always have a, a fellowship hall, a koinonia hall, I guess, if you wanted to name it in Greek. Fellowship describes those times when we come together as certain believers. But as with any Greek word, there's often not a perfect translation back into English. The Greek word koinonia talks about much, much more, a much deeper relationship. In fact, we get the word communion from the Greek word koinonia. It's not just a social gathering. It's about coming together because of Christ and coming together through Christ. It refers to a deep-rooted relationship. You may not have anything in common except for the passion that you have for Christ, knowing that Christ has a passion for you, and that's good enough according to the word koinonia. Just as another piece of trivia that you don't have to pay for, in last year's National Spelling Bee, the word koinonia was the final word, and a 14-year-old boy from Texas got it right. So do with that what you want. Paul was writing about this deep-rooted relationship, this deep-rooted connection he had with the people in Philippi. So we go to Philippians 1.6. He's saying, being confident of this, okay, in the preceding verse, he's talking about joy. He's talking about the partnership they have in ministry. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it out until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul uh, felt that, that the return of Christ was going to be almost any day now. He truly thought it was going to be in his lifetime. And so he's talking about the fact that, that God is continually doing something good in your life. Okay, this good work that God has started. What do you think that good work is? If, if you were to say God is doing a good work in your life, what, what do you think that looks like? Anybody? It's a tough question, I know. Do you believe that God's doing a good work in your life? I hope we do. Yeah, absolutely. If we believe what the scripture tells us, then absolutely we do. If you believe in the CUC and what it stands for, then yeah, we're under construction. That's why I love the name of your class. Okay, when we say yes to God, 
to God's gift of salvation, we're forgiven, the scripture says. We're, we're given new life. And that continues, the scripture says, as God transforms us into the likeness of Christ. This is referred to as sanctification. That's where we get the word saint from, by the way. Sanctifying, sanctus, a Latin word for saint. Okay, so that's, that's what all that means. Sanctification means that you're becoming more and more like a saint, okay, more and more like the believer that God wants each of us to be. Paul was confident that God would continue his sanctifying work in the Christians in Philippi so that they might become even more effective partners with him in this great task. So each of us is a work in progress. Like I said, I hope you, you really believe in that. Because, because if that isn't the case, Paul wouldn't have had the need to tell the people in Philippi that they're a work in progress, that God is finishing. God is going to finish what he starts. I'll share a little bit about my own life. I, I was born in Charlotte, grew up for a few years in Fort Lauderdale. My dad was an aeronautical engineer. He took a job with Lockheed, and we moved to, uh, to West Cobb when I was 12 years old. And growing up, I hated going to church. Luckily, my parents didn't go very often, maybe luckily for me at the time, certainly not now. Uh, but I didn't want to go to church. I didn't like it. When we moved to Georgia, my mom said, we're going to start going to church. So she would take us to church. Dad didn't go. I would get so mad at my mom for, for dragging us to church. But you know what? It was there that I met the guy who, who lived next door to us. He was my age. We went to the same middle school. He asked me if I wanted to come to his church youth group. And, and I said, yeah. And it was there that I made some of the best friends that I've ever had. That, 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 that guy that I met when I was in seventh grade, he ended up rooming with me at the University of Georgia. He was the, the best man in my wedding 14 years ago. When I was 12 at that church, McEachern, United Methodist Church in Powder Springs, that's where I grew up. When I was 12, I, I went to the altar at a revival service. I, I prayed for God to forgive my sin. And God then brought not only forgiveness and redemption, God rescued me and saved me, but he also just deposited a great amount of hope and peace. Now, there are times when I forget that. There are times I need more of it. But because we know that we're continually under construction, God is doing some really cool stuff. Let me fast forward, okay, several years after my, my conversion at the age of 12. I was working as a television sportscaster, and I was walking into Kroger one day. A guy was walking out. He recognized me. I thought maybe he saw me on TV. As it turns out, no, he saw me at their church. He said, hey, I'm the youth pastor at this church. Would you be willing to, to lead a, a middle school boys Bible study? No way. Don't want anything to do with that, but I couldn't tell him no fast enough. So a week later, I went into this small group Bible study of 7th and 8th grade boys, was intimidated, didn't want to be there, didn't feel like I knew anything about the Bible, how could I lead a Bible study? But slowly but surely, that's when God started that call in the ministry. He, he called me earlier than I responded, and, and I didn't respond at first. I, I delayed it. True story, I didn't want to be poor. That was my whole thing. I don't want to be poor, so, so I didn't do it. Now, true story, when I told my parents that God was calling me into full-time ministry, mom and dad, I'm going to leave my television career, I'm going to go into ministry, my mom said, please don't do that. Now, turns out, like I said, they're really active at McEachern Methodist. My mom was on the SPR committee. You guys familiar with the SPR committee? 
And my mom said, Joe, I see the way in which our church talks about our pastor, and I don't want you to be like that guy. So she said, true story. She said, she said no. Finally, she came around, and, uh, and now they're incredibly grateful uh, that I'm doing what I do. But the truth is, God has never stopped working in me. Even when God said, Joe, I'm calling you into vocational ministry, and I said, no, nah, don't want to do that. But, but it wasn't one of those forever hold your peace or act now kind of thing. It was like, no, God was still wooing me, uh, calling me closer to the call that he has for my life. And eventually my heart started to soften towards that. The Holy Spirit continued to, to work in me, chipping away and chiseling at maybe a hardened heart, if you will, that, that finally led me to a place where I could say yes. Now, here's me as a pastor. I love wearing a robe. In Chaparral, I have to wear jeans and an untucked shirt because I have to look cool. Um, I personally like wearing the robe. Okay, I paid a lot of money for it, so let's get some mileage out of it. Okay, now here's the deal, okay? I'm not being boastful here. Let me just share this, okay? I've been a pastor for 15 years. I have a Master's of Divinity from Asbury Theological Seminary. I planted a church. I have a doctorate from Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas. I've written countless magazine articles about ministry. I've written curriculum for the United Methodist Church. Uh, but you know what? I never reach a point, nor do you, in which we can say, man, we have finally arrived. God's done everything he wants to do in us. No, that's a myth. That's why we did the Mythbusters thing at the very beginning of our time together, because that's a myth. I pray that no one believes that. Don't ever think that God is through with you because that's not biblical. That's not theologically correct. God continues to work, chipping away at the things that God doesn't want me to have, pouring into me things that he does want me to have. And I'll be honest with you, my wife will attest to this, that we've been married 14 years. I'm still learning. I'm still growing as a husband, okay? And I think I probably always will. I don't yet have it all figured out. According to my wife, I have none of it figured out. Um, but you know what? Like I said, God continues to chisel away and chip away at those places in my heart that are not as God wants them to be. I continue to grow as a daddy, as a husband, as a pastor. Uh, I certainly continue to grow as a pastor, and I continue to, to mature, I hope. Some days are better than others. Continue to mature as a follower of Jesus. Sometimes, like I said, we get caught up in other things, and I don't focus on that. But Scripture assures us that God is transforming us into the, quote, likeness of Christ. The Greek word for transform, it implies a continuous process, okay? It's not just a boom, one-time deal. God is continually, it's a continuous process. God is continually working in your life. Now, with that said, if God is continually molding us, transforming us into the image of Jesus, then this is a fair question to ask. Is my wife able to see a husband who continues to surrender to God's grace? Are my kids able to see a daddy who is more of a positive role model? Are my neighbors able, able to see a godly man who deeply cares for them and will go out of my way to help them? Is the congregation at our church able to see a Christ-like leader who is a good example of a Christ-like life? Is God making me more and more like Jesus, and are therefore people around me able to see that? It's a question I think we all have to ask ourselves. Can people see the likeness of Jesus pouring out through my interactions with them? How is God working in your life? Maybe... Maybe God's been chiseling away at a 
certain area, certain corner, if you will, of your life that maybe you've tried to hide from others, maybe hide from yourself, maybe thinking you can hide from God. Uh, maybe God is, is calling you to take a risk when it comes to your faith, stepping out truly on faith, stepping out on faith out of your comfort zone. Maybe God is calling you to reach out to someone that you need to forgive. Maybe God is calling you to show your neighbor that, that you care for them because God cares for them. Uh, maybe God is calling you to, to delve deeper into Scripture. Uh, maybe God is calling you to place more emphasis on prayer. Maybe God's calling you to be a more Christ-like example for your children or your grandchildren. And as God continues to transform you into the likeness of Christ, can people around you, because they should be, if you're being transformed into the likeness of Christ, people should be able to see more and more of Jesus in you and through you. Can they? So as we wrap up this first section, here's what I want to do. I want to pose a question. Uh, then I want to give you a little bit of silence, okay? And then I'll, I'll lead us into a time of prayer. Ponder this question as we go into a bit of silence. How would your life look different if you fully trusted God to work in all areas of your life? Now, maybe you already do that. I'll be honest with you. Sometimes I don't. Okay? How would your life look? Would it look different if you fully trusted God to work in all areas of your life? Let's go to God in prayer. Well, dear Heavenly Father, we... We so much thank you for loving us. We thank you for leading us here to this place and time together, this koinonia. Lord God, we, we look forward to hearing from you. In what areas of our lives are you seeking to change? And what areas of our lives do we need to more fully surrender to you? Lord God, we acknowledge that Regardless of our age, regardless of our stage of life, we are still a work in progress. And we thank you for never giving up on us. The scripture tells us that you finish what you start. And we look forward to becoming more and more like Jesus. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the assurance and the promise of eternal life. We thank you for the assurance and the promise that you are with us here and now in this life. We love you so much, and we thank you for first loving us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, here's what I want us to do. If you need to take a, like a five-minute break, you want to do that now? Or are you guys okay for a while? What, what do you want to do? We're going to do something fun, okay? So, not what I'm normally doing. We're going to do something really fun here. Okay, I love modern day parables. Jesus would take something that was seemingly unordinary, that's a word, but he made it something extraordinary or extraordinary. And he took something that doesn't seemingly have anything to do with scripture or with a godly life or with Jesus, and yet he was able to, to twist it and make it in a very positive way, something that could reach people of different generations, different backgrounds, so that people could understand uh, the seemingly simple a theology of a God who loves us. Okay, so uh, I like using stories. I love sports illustrations, stuff like that, 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 that help us maybe delve into Scripture. So here's what I want us to do. I want you to, uh, at your table, I want you to, uh, to watch this, and here's what we're going to do, okay? Now I'm going to throw a lot, of, uh, a lot of stuff right back at you. Here's what we're going to do. You're going to watch a short video, 
And then at your table, you guys are going to interact saying, okay, what can we take from this video that can help somebody else understand more about God? It could be something off the wall. It could be something, something seemingly far-fetched. It could be something simple and rudimentary, whatever you guys want to do. And then after a few minutes, we'll come back and each table will pick some sort of presenter, okay, a spokesperson, if you will, to, to share what your table said. And then we're going to either cheer or we're going to boo. No, no we're not going to do that, okay? We're not going to do that at all. We are going to see, though, we're going to see how God works in us in different ways, okay? So, so this table may say something, another table may say something else. So with that said, let's see if I can get this to work and check this out. Anybody know what show it is? Absolutely. Can you hear okay in the back? You all right? Anybody know that song? It's a classic. We scan the headlines. We race to the office. 
the full schedule and the split second. These are gauges of success. We drive ourselves from morn to night. We have forgotten the meaning of the word relaxation. What has become of the old-fashioned ways? The simple pleasure. A simple, innocent pleasure. And so I say to you, dear friends, relax. Slow down. Take it easy. Watch your hurry. <laughs> what indeed, friends, is your hurry? Doc Breen, may I introduce Sheriff Taylor? Doc Breen. His aunt, Miss B. Miss Johnson. Uh -huh. And Miss Deputy Five. <laughs> Hello. Real pleasure. Oh, Dr. Breen, your sermon had such a wonderful lesson for us. Yes, sir, you really hit the nail right on the head there. Yes, sir, that's one subject you just can't talk enough about. Sin. <laughs> yes, uh, well, um... Well, look forward to seeing you. Well, it's good to Bye. 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 Didn't talk about sin. All right. Here's the charge I'm going to give to your respective tables. Take ten minutes. Okay, have some sort of spokesperson be creative. There's no right or wrong answer. If you had to use this to, to talk about the message of God continually working in your life, how would you use this? Okay, with that said, go to it. Okay, guys, uh, time flies when we're having fun, okay? So here's what we need. I need a spokesperson from each table. Just take, you know, a minute to tell us what your group came up with. Then we're going to come back. I've got five minutes, literally, and then we're going to be gone for nights, okay? So, who would like to go first? What table? You guys got it going on. Okay. All right. Let me get, get the mic. Yeah. You're one step ahead of me. Awesome. Okay. So, you saw the parable of Andy Griffith. By the way, Barney Fife's character is my favorite character in the history of television. Love Barney Fife. Don Knotts. Okay, yes, sir. What do you got for us? Okay. Let me, uh, this is mine. I ignored the table. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, uh, the first thing was that the message was garbled. A lot of noise. A lot of gratitude. Hard to pull any straightforward message out of there. Therefore, the first thing is it's up to us to figure out what the message is. And hold that thought, too. You, you're right on. I'm going to say something about that in a second. So you're perfect. Go ahead. Okay. So it's up to us. First, second item is that we're not alone in trying to find that, that we are dependent upon those around us to help us find that message and to explore them. Well done. Good job, guys. All right. Yeah, that's right. Okay, they've got their spokesperson. Let's see what she has to say for their table. You know I always have something to say. There you go. I love it. What we were taking from this is how different people interpret a sermon in different ways. But the reason being, we'll hear something that affects our lives or a situation 
that we have been in or something that, well, maybe my family should be doing this. We hear what our minds need to hear, but we also need to count on those in the room with us to share and to work on these lessons. But everyone does not always hear the same thing out of a message. So many different people in the room will pick up different things as to what suits their brain and what affects their brain and their life at that particular time. Yep, very well said. What did Barney Fife say about the sermon? Yeah. About sin. <laughs> I love that. Um, but that's the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit allows us to, to hear the message through our own grids, our own filter, and, and the Holy Spirit kind of personalizes it in many cases so that we can experience what God wants us to take it, and what you take away might be something that God wants for you to take away or vice versa. So you guys are exactly right. Yes, ma'am. Well, we settled on the fact that the um, minister was trying to impress, and therefore, if you're going to be able to reach your individuals whom you're speaking to, you got to be on their level, and you got to be able to discuss with them something that would be of knowledge that they would understand. Uh, that was one area that we felt like Good. was very important. The other was that we felt like that uh, attire should not be something that is important in them. Uh, when you're trying to bring people in to see uh, what Christ is all about. For instance, when they were showing their hats and all of that, remember the first part of that? Well, that's not an important part of it. Mm -hmm. What's important is that you reach them through their understanding and giving them a message that they would like to be Amen. available to Christ. Well done. You guys are amazing. I can just go home tonight and let you guys run the rest of the show. You'll be awesome. All right, what do we got back here? I wasn't here. I don't know what. <laughs> well, we decided that um, the preacher wasn't relevant. Did I use that say it wrong? <laughs> to the congregation. And in that regard, there was no way that he is meeting their needs and what they're looking for. <laughs> yeah, they needed a little humor. That's true. <laughs> so many of them were there without even knowing why they were there. Or certainly they didn't come because of the stated reason, which was a church or was a, there was a sermon to be heard. They were coming because it was the socially acceptable thing to do. And Barney didn't have a clue what was going on, but he was there. And that was really the important part. That's, that church, that structure, provided him with a moral basis in his life. Even unstated, it was the moral basis in his life. And, and for all of them, that's how it worked. Well said. I'm sorry that I, I have not given a, a uh, counter argument to, <laughs> but what I wanted to say is that 
the only time the congregation was engaged in the lesson or in anything was when they were singing. They fell asleep. They were not. So we got to be able to engage people where they are. Very well said. And I I'd, I'd, like, I'd like to add that one person in our table observed that no collection was taken. <laughs> it wasn't a real church service, then, was it? <laughs> yeah, we're going to pass the, pass the plates later tonight. So, uh. Well, uh, at our table, the thing that struck us was that uh, in order to really have a successful service, you need to be able to hold the attention of your audience. I feel we're very fortunate at, at our church to have Tom and to have you, Joe. Uh, and I, I have to admit, I'm a, I'm a person who, uh, I, I slept through almost all my high school classes, uh, college lectures, uh, church services. I just went right to sleep. And in our church, that doesn't happen. And, you know, one of the other things I'll mention, and it might help you, that minister spoke so slow. <laughs> and that may be also a reason why people lost their attention. But anyway, keeping your attention, keeping you focused on the message that the, the minister is trying to uh, impart to you, uh, is is so important, and it, that did not happen in that church. That's cool, and, and I really appreciate all of uh, just the, the deep insight that you guys had. Because I'll be honest with you, I was going a totally different direction, and I you going to go there because you guys are better. Um, what's cool though is that every one of you, in, in your own way, mentioned something about the pastor maybe not uh, being relevant, and I don't know if that's because of the, the, the sermon that they wrote for the story, or if because it was a you know nationally televised program that they didn't want to go too deep in a you know in with that. I'm not sure what the reason was. But but you guys had some really good answers and, and hold on to your thoughts because we're gonna do this exercise tomorrow as well with a different video, a little bit shorter, but a little bit more eclectic. So hold on to that. Now if you guys are, are, are ever so willing, just give me five minutes, okay, then we'll turn you loose for the rest of the night. Is that fair? Okay. No moans or groans or death threats, anything out there? We're all right? Okay. Now, several of you mentioned the fact that um, we, we kind of see things that, that maybe we see or we hear things a certain way uh, that maybe somebody next to us doesn't hear or doesn't see. Okay, what do you see in this? Okay, you see it one of two ways. God is now here. God is nowhere. How many of you saw this one? How many of you saw this one? Interesting, okay. Nothing about your spiritual state based on your selection there. Here's the next one. Okay, here's what we got. A woman without her man is nothing. True, false. False. You could also look at it this way. A woman, without her, man is nothing. <laughs> yeah, we like that one a little bit better. I thought it was about a guy named Herman. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. 
Herman is nothing. I like it. Our final example um, of the night. How many of you have ever been there? Mount Rushmore. Man, a lot of you have. That's, that's really cool. You know what it is. It's a mammoth sculpture carved into the granite of Mount Rushmore in South Dakota. The idea came from a South Dakota historian who wanted to promote tourism to his state. He initially wanted a massive sculpture of famous Western heroes and explorers, Lewis and Clark, Buffalo Bill Cody, for example, but people didn't like those ideas. So he brought in a famous American sculptor, a man by the name of Gutson Borglum. Anybody heard of Borglum? Borglum? Good stuff. He actually came from Georgia. The guy who carved Mount Rushmore was a guy who started carving Stone Mountain in 1924. He had a dispute with the group that was overseeing the Stone Mountain project, and before he had finished, he decided he was going to leave and go out to South Dakota and start a new work out there. Now, he felt like he wanted to, to really bring out the faces of the American presidents. He, he thought that they would have a greater appeal to attract tourists from around the country if they focused on presidents versus something that might be uh, relatively Western in nature. The carving was started in 1927. The faces of the four presidents was completed between 1934 and 1939. Each president's head is as tall as a six-story building. Now, Genson Borglum died in 1941. Fourteen years after he started Mount Rushmore, he was still, though, a long way from being finished. He had planned to extend the figures of each president down to their waist, but he never lived long enough to see his dream come to completion, not only with Mount Rushmore, but with Stone Mountain before that. His son did continue with the work for a few months, but he eventually ran out of money, so the funding had dried up. It's been almost 90 years Millions of tourists later, but Mount Rushmore and all of its grandeur and all of its beauty remains an unfinished work of art. It's breathtaking, it's beautiful, but it's still unfinished. So are you. So am I. And that's what I want us to take to bed tonight. Knowing that the same God who isn't finished working in you because he loves you so much that he promises us through Scripture, time and time again. But God finishes what he starts. God doesn't start and abandon. He doesn't leave you off. Okay, You're not ever too far gone. To the contrary, God says, I, I love you. I redeem you. I want to be uh, of importance in your life because you, whatever your name is, is important to God. That's a powerful thing. It's not based on what you do or I do. It's based on the grace of of God. And then based on that grace of God, based on the, the, the salvation and the sanctification and the justification that, that God has done and continues to do in us, that, that then yeah, our actions are going to change. Our reactions are going to change. Our, our, our words, our, our thoughts, our spending habits, our, our, the way we argue with our wife, all of those things, they're going to change because of the presence of God in our lives. So earlier today, we talked about being a work in progress, and I hope that each of us can Remember that. You're a work in progress, but you're not like Stone Mountain. You're not like Mount Rushmore. We're not just going to leave you where you are. To the contrary, God loves you. God claims you. God redeems you. God calls you. And I pray that over the next couple of days during our time together that we can dig deeper into that. Maybe figure out what that looks like in your life. I'm still trying to figure out maybe what it looks like 
in mind. So, I'm going to wrap up in prayer. I do have more of those olive wood crosses if you want to take a couple. They're also, like I said, the little little cardboard thing or whatever it is. It talks a little bit about where it came from and also has the Lord's Prayer on the back. If you want to give it to someone, that might be a cool thing. So, would you pray with me? The most loving and gracious God, we can, we can see the ways in which your Holy Spirit is moving in us and with us and through us. And I pray that each of us, can, to, together, we can make the body of Christ even stronger. May those around us see the ways in which you are at work in our lives. Lord, we, we pray for revival. We pray for healing. We pray for peace. And may we be believers who truly expect, Lord, you to do something mighty. We pray for those who don't yet know you. Lord God, we pray for grace and mercy to surround our communities, our families, our schools, our workplaces, and our church. That special place that is RUMC. I thank you for each man and woman who's here tonight. We thank you for traveling mercies as we all came up here together. We lift up those who weren't able to make it. Let them know, Lord, just through the movement of your Holy Spirit, even right now, that they are loved and that they are missed, that they are being thought of and that they are being prayed for. That just as Paul says that he is grateful for each of the people for whom he is praying, he prays with a deep sense. Each person in this place can realize that they instill joy in the lives of so many others. Let us never forget that, Lord. Father God, we, we just love you so much. And we just pray for you to pour out your blessing upon our time here. May it be a blessing to each of us, but Lord, more importantly, may it be pleasing to you. Thank you, Lord, for loving us. We pray for the rest of our evening and the rest of our time here together. Thank you for drawing us to such a beautiful place, for you are a beautiful God. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Rest of the night, my friends, is yours. We'll be together tomorrow morning, and we'll do another modern-day parable. So it's going to be a little bit short, a little bit different. Like I said, take some crosses, enjoy the rest of your night, and uh, look forward to spending time with y'all. Thank <laughs> you.